I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. In his debut novel, The Bookie's Son, author Andrew Goldstein transports us to the Bronx in the 1960s. The coming-of-age tale draws on Goldstein's own childhood and is told through the eyes of 12-year-old Ricky Davis. Ricky's a boy on the verge of manhood. His dad's a dress cutter who moonlights as a bookie and a debt collector for a mobster. Andrew Goldstein is our guest on this morning cityscape. Andrew, good morning. Good morning, George. This is your debut novel. How big of a dream was it for you to get to this point? Well, it, it's a pretty amazing thing. Um, when I was about 40 years ago, a little over 40 years ago, I actually had a, a nonfiction book published. And I figured, okay, great, I'm a writer and I could make a, 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 you know, a career out of this. And then I started writing this novel uh, just about 40 years ago. And I just struggled with it. And you, years wait, went wait, by. wait, wait, wait! You started writing this novel forty years ago. Yes. <laughs> so this novel is forty years in the making, huh? It's forty years in the making. I did take off, you know, probably fifteen, twenty years there. Um, I just gave up writing. I figured that was something I just did in my youth. And I, you know, I just went on and became a custom builder. And then when my kids were grown, I started writing for a couple hours in the morning a different novel before I go to work in the morning. And I said, hey. I like this. And um, then I started going back and forth between my old novel, The Bookie's Son, and my new novel. And to actually get it published now, 40 years later, after, you know, I first started having rejections about 38 <laughs> years ago. So, it's yeah, it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty amazing thing, actually. I know you call this the third act of your adult life, right? Yes. What did Acts 1 and 2 consist of mostly, then? My, my adult life, I mean, after college. So after college, I immediately um, started writing a nonfiction book. And I also, I was, uh, we we went to Oregon first, and I was there, I was a tree planter there, and I worked as an assistant librarian. And I was always trying to do jobs where I could still write in between. And then I ended up going to California with a friend, and we managed an organic olive and orange, orange ranch, which worked out perfectly, though it was a lot of work. It was a lot of down. It was, it was 110 degrees there usually during the daytime in the summer, so I had plenty of time to write in the afternoons. And then, um, then eventually I moved back to the East Coast, and I just did a whole series of jobs. Again, always trying to write. I was a school bus driver, a Zamboni driver. I took up tennis and became a, a tennis instructor, and um, I worked at G- General Electric as a tube winder. Um, and I should mention also as a Zamboni. In- driver. I was really the worst Zamboni driver ever. Is that right? Well, I froze the Zamboni to the to the ice in the middle of a hockey game. <laughs> so that tells you something about my skills as a Zamboni driver. Sounds like but something anyway, for an upcoming novel. It, well, it could be. I, I try <laughs> to use that. I, I try to use it. I haven't used it yet, but I am going to try to use it. But, um, and then eventually I just decided, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I'm not a writer. So I ended up getting in the building business, and and that was really the second act. The first act was what I described before. The second act was I became a builder and a father. And that's what I did. And I just figured the writing was behind me. And then in the third act, I'm still I'm still a builder, but the third act really is transitioning back to being a writer again. Again, your debut novel is called The Bookie's Son. It's set in the Bronx in the 1960s. Is the Bronx your hometown? The Bronx is my hometown. The, the novel is based on my childhood. My father was a bookie and my mother uh, was a secretary for the top theatrical lawyer in New York. 
And they never had much money, and my, they both were gamblers. My father particularly lost a lot of money gambling, and eventually he became a bookie. And so from the time I was 10 years old, I was taking bets at home with my um, almost blind and nearly deaf grandmother. So we would be at home taking bets while he was working in the garment center in New York. And, um, you know, he never wanted my grandmother to take the bets because, because she was almost blind and didn't hear that well. She would just, she would want, first of all, she would get the bets wrong. Second of all, her writing, she would write on napkins with Wesson oil in it. it was, and he would come home screaming that he couldn't read the bets. So I had to sort of take over that role. And that was the genesis of this novel. So you have Basically. a lot in common with 12-year-old Ricky Davis, the protagonist. I have a lot in common. Book. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, the characters are really based on my family. And, and they were, you know, it was, a interesting, it was an interesting way to grow up in the Bronx. As a kid raised in the Bronx in the 50s and 60s, what does a pink Spalding ball mean to you? It, well, it means everything. <laughs> everything because um, one of the great things about the Bronx, at least in those days, was that you were part of the street. And unlike um, today, at least where I live now in the suburbs, where everything is separate, you know, I take my kids, I used to take my kids to the soccer lessons and games, and it was like driving them everywhere. In the Bronx, you were in the street at a very early age, really just three or four years old. You were down there playing by yourself. And there were just all these different games you would play with a, with a pink sporting ball. And you would play the normal games you hear punch ball and stick ball, but there was also King Queen Jack and Off the Stoop and hit the penny, and box ball, and box baseball, and, you know, just every day. And there, was always, there were always kids in the street to play with. So ball games was a really important part of growing up for me in the Bronx. And it was, you know, for me, the Bronx was actually a paradise. The, the Bronx could be dangerous once you moved um, outside of your neighborhood. But within your neighborhood, it was really a very safe environment because there, there was an old woman that sat at a window watching the street and sort of protected it. And, and I modeled, uh, there's a character in the book that's modeled on her. Fat Bertha. And pe- and Fat Bertha. And there were people in the street. There were old people sitting on benches, uh, on aluminum chairs in the street. And there were always, you know, women shopping. And at night, the men would come home. And there was a candy store. And everybody would go there to um, just to talk and talk about sports or betting and sometimes politics. Now, for my parents, it was a different story. They wanted out of the Bronx. Mm-hmm. The Bronx represented a dead end to them. You, you know, say in the book, they... by the way, you say in the book that for Ricky's parents, especially his mother, the Bronx represented everything that was wrong with their lives and their marriage. Exactly. Both in, in the book and, it, and, it, and the characters in the book are um, Harry and Pearl. When they were younger, they had these good dreams for their lives, and they looked like they were going to succeed. Um, Harry was a very good athlete. He also was a good pool player and... He was making some money at an early age. Uh, Pearl was very beautiful. She was a singer in the Catskill Mountains when she was 16. And they were both very good dancers. And it just they were, they, were, they were on the road to success. And so when things didn't go well after World War II, and there was just um, a series of continually losing money, not having money, always in debt. Eventually, in the book, they're in debt to a mobster. It just created a lot of tension. And the Bronx represented all of that because the Bronx was sort of like, this is not where they wanted to live. They wanted to move to Westchester or Long Island or somewhere else, really almost anywhere but the Bronx, and it just represented. Um, well, for them, it just seemed like they were losers. They couldn't get they couldn't get out of the Bronx. And as I say, for me, the Bronx was, and for Ricky, the Bronx was a paradise. And for your real-life parents, it was also that as it was for Pearl and Terry. They wanted out. Yes. Yeah, no, that, that, I mean, that's really based... 
pretty much. I mean, the book the book is a novel, and the beauty of a novel is you can mix fact and fiction, but that part of it is is all fact. You know, the and the, and the, I would say Harry and Pearl are pretty close to my real parents, and that need and want to um, get out of the Bronx that was a very strong thing, particularly for Pearl. I mean, I mean, they both did, but Pearl was much more vocal about it. And then she saw the fact that she they couldn't get out, and the fact that that um. In the book, Harry, or even my my real parents, just saw uh, my father as a as a somebody who couldn't make it, and that created just um, a lot of problems in the marriage because they just never had money. And you know, when you don't have money and you want you want to try to everybody wants to try to make a life, and and they weren't doing it, and it just created a lot of tension. And there's a lot of screaming all the time in the house. In the end, the family does indeed get out of the Bronx, though they moved to New Rochelle. Did your family move to Westchester too? They moved to New Rochelle. They did. <laughs> Actually, there we go. They did. Yeah, so I, I, I went to high school in, in New Rochelle. And that was a big change. I mean, it was just a, even though the Bronx, I think, is, at one point is only like a mile from New Rochelle, it was like a totally, culturally, it was just a different world. So it took me a while to, to get used to it. As it did for Ricky when he went back to his neighborhood in the Bronx in the book. He just didn't feel the same about it anymore. He didn't see his friends in the same way. Exactly. You know, you just, you just, I think you just, I think this is true almost where you live. You just, you become part of that culture. And then um, suddenly the culture that you used to be part of, you just have a much different perspective on it. Ricky is very close to his mom, Pearl. She confides in him perhaps more than she should. In fact, they have a relationship that's more like a husband and a wife than a mother and a son. How healthy would you say that relationship is? Well, that's a, that's really a great question, George. I mean, I would think most psychiatrists and therapists would say it's totally unhealthy and it was really a bad thing for Pearl to do that to Ricky. I would argue that I can I can buy into that perspective. But there was there was something good about it as well and that there was a closeness between them and a, and a really strong love and it and, it, and it, it gave Ricky a tremendous amount of empathy. And so I would say it's it's a mixed bag. You know, it probably was a little too intense, but that um, there were some good things about it as well. But I, you know, my 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 own tendency is to always sort of see the good side of things. So I'm probably not the best judge of that relationship. How would you describe Ricky's relationship with his father? Well, that was I mean, a lot of men in those days really they they came out of depression, they came out of World War II, they really were a lot different than we are. And they um, they didn't talk that much. My, uh, my father in real life and, and Harry in the book, both, they only had eight, eighth grade educations. And so they were very, I mean, maybe stoical and just they were somewhat removed from the the way we think of a of a father today, especially with a father, you know, more and more men are taking care of their children and stuff. In those days, and for someone like Harry, you know, he's working 10 hours a day in the garment center, plus he's doing this bookie business. This, there's really not that much time, you know, to be with his children. And in this case, where the the mother, in in the book, um, she's very verbal, and she's also very close to Ricky. So um, she's dominating that relationship, and the father doesn't have the opportunity to do that. Now, the, the exception to that would be when it came to sports, both in real life and in the book, the the father would play sports with Ricky. And so there was a closeness there on a physical and a tactile way. But in terms of actually communicating verbally 
and talking to each other about feelings and stuff. That that didn't happen too much. In addition to moonlighting as a bookie, Harry Davis also serves as a debt collector for a mobster by the name of Nathan Glucksman. And did your dad also do that? My I, what, what I don't want to do um, is get into too much about what's true and what isn't true. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, what, I, what I'd rather talk about is just the general stuff. My father did get involved with some people, and he did do some other things besides um, bookmaking. There was, you know, he got involved with um, importing um, tax-free cigarettes from the Carolinas, and he did a couple of other things that would fall under the shady side of the law. Um, a lot of get-rich-quick schemes, just like Ricky's dad, I would imagine. Then exactly, there was always that feeling and always that desire to get rich. That was like, you know, money in this household was incredibly important. And um, money in my household was like that, too. In the book, Harry actually takes his son, Ricky, to collect a debt. Now, that's a pretty harsh reality for a kid. He ended up having to do that, actually, to pay off a debt that he he had with Nathan Glucksman. So it wasn't something he wanted to do, and it made him depressed. So Ricky went along just to sort of cheer him up. And when he had gone before... The father did not want him as part of it, so he always sent him to Jan's ice cream parlor or to Alexander's to buy something. In this particular occasion, um, in a first scene in the book, uh, there's a tremendous rainstorm, and they end up going into this tailor shop together, and there's just, there's no, he, I mean, Harry can't send Ricky back out into the storm, so he's just sort of there when it happens, but that, that was never the intent of the father for him to be, actually be there when he was actually trying to collect some money. It was more he was walking along with him on the way there, and and then they would separate normally. But this is where things change for the family entirely because Harry allows the man who owes the money to keep the money, right? Yes. It's it's one of those classic things where he actually was doing a very good— his intentions were good, and it was a very good deed, but it created a lot of problems for the family. And Pearl, who tended to see Harry's actions— usually in a negative light, she really was furious that he did this because now it jeopardized her. And you know, and, and her mind is, why is she helping out? Why is he helping out this stranger? Why not be nice to her and the family? And so it created a lot of conflict as well. The guy was a really Holocaust said, survivor. He wanted to make sure the that The Taylor was a back. Holocaust mm-hmm. survivor, and, and Harry had been, during the war, he had been part of the um, rescue operation. So, you know, there was a lot of reasons why he would want to help this person. As you mentioned, Ricky's mom was a secretary for a popular talent lawyer, like your mom was in real life. And this lawyer's client list included the likes of Marilyn Monroe and Elizabeth Taylor. Now, the family owed a lot of money to this mobster. And to help save her family, Pearl embezzles money from Liz Taylor. Well, I don't want to give everything in the book away. But yes, that, 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 is, that, is, that is what happens. Again, what happens here is that each character, Ricky being... Um, the main mover of the trying different money making schemes to try to help the father, but even the grandmother and the and the mother they're all trying in their own way, and usually it's somewhat of a little bit illegal or shady way to in fact raise some money so they can get the father out of debt to the gangster. What I found pretty amusing about all of that is that Pearl thinks to take money from Marilyn Monroe to pay back Elizabeth Taylor right makes me laugh <laughs> well, out I think loud. she at, at one point because she realizes she's you know the counts are going to soon see these books, and she's going to, so at one point she's trying to think about well she could move money from Marilyn Monroe to Elizabeth Taylor, and maybe move Tennessee Williams money to her account and just do a whole 
shell game type of thing. And, and but I think she realizes that's not going to work. But um, her intention was not to in any way keep the money. But uh, she was able to rationalize, which people quite often can do, rationalize borrowing it for a while because she really needed it to. Otherwise, there's going to be a lot of bad consequences with the mobster. One of the funnier scenes in the book for me is when a couple of henchmen come looking for Ricky's dad and his grandmother is offering them jello and cookies. Yeah, I, I like that scene as well. The, the henchmen are called the Spratz brothers, and they come up to the apartment, and since the grandmother didn't see so well, you know, at first she thinks she, they're just friends of Ricky. And then, um, and she's also, she's always, the grandmother is just looking you know, to always basically give people cookies or jello, and then to asking them to play cards with her, and you know, she just thinks it's a fun time, and not re- realizing that this is really right at that moment. Um, this is the business, and she should just go back to watching television, which Ricky finally persuades her to do. I must say, Ricky's grandmother is quite the character in the book. She steals the show whenever she shows up. Was your grandmother like that? Did she always steal the show? Um, <laughs> I, you know, she did a lot. And it's interesting. Uh, I'm getting some good reviews on Amazon with the book, and quite a few people now who have read the book, um, they really always usually mention the grandmother either as their favorite character or they re- they really like her. So I feel really good about that. My grandmother d- in real life did live with us, and and she could be a show stealer. My, uh, you know, in real life, my mother was a show stealer also. So between the two of them, the women were sort of dominating, stealing the show, and that, that also created problems for my father and for Harry in the book. Because he was, you know, you have these two strong steel showing women in your household is enough of a problem. And then when you add the money problem, it just created a lot of tension. Your parents are on the cover of the book, right? Those are my real parents. And, um, you know, that was a debate to use a real picture, but I decided to do that. One time I was going to use real, even though it's a fiction, I was going to use real pictures in the book. Again, because in my mind, it's a mixture of fact and fiction, and I like mixing memoir and, and, and novel. But in the end, I decided not to do that. So I, I actually had my daughter do some illustrations based on some family photos. So the beginning of each chapter starts with a illustration, which most of those are based on real uh, photos that I have. There's also a photo of you on the cover of the book. Yes. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Borarki. Our guest this morning is author Andrew Goldstein. He's here to talk about his debut novel, The Bookie's Son. The coming-of-age tale draws on Goldstein's own childhood growing up in the Bronx in the 1960s. As we mentioned, Ricky spends a lot of time in his apartment picking up the phone and taking bets for his father. But when he does get away from the apartment, he's either doing one of two things. He's hanging out with the super's daughter, Mara, or he's practicing his speech for his bar mitzvah. And actually, it's funny to think that a family being shaken down by a mobster for money is planning this big family event at the same time. Did you see the comedy in that as you were writing it? Yes. And again, in my mind, even though there are a couple of scenes that are pretty difficult and some graphic scenes, I mean, to me, this is a comic novel, and, and I'm getting the sense that from the reviews that a lot of people are finding it very funny, which really I feel good about. And and the pro- the problem is that the um, even though they're already in debt to the the mobster, in order to have what would be in those days a fairly lavish affair, 
Um, they need to borrow more money from this same mobster. And you could wonder, how is that possible? Why would they even think to do that? But it was incredibly important, both to Harry and Pearl, that they throw a nice affair. It's not because they were that religious. It was less to do with the actual ceremony. But in that culture, and I'm going to, at least the culture that I knew growing up, which I'm going to de define as low income, working class, Jewish culture, basically first genera generation born in this country, coming out of the Depression, it was incredibly important to, if you had a party like that, to, for your friends and your family, to make it look and to really, like you had some money or that you cared and you were going to throw this you know, very nice affair. And you didn't want to throw a cheap affair. You wanted it to be just right. So even if you had to borrow money, you would do it. And certainly my parents were part of that culture. And for them, it was an extremely important thing. It didn't matter how much debt they had to get into, but that they wanted people to go home saying, oh, that Harry and Pearl, they really know how to throw a, a nice affair. And that somehow was incredibly important to them. How well do you remember your bar mitzvah? Um, I remember it pretty well, actually. I remember it pretty well because it was an intense time. It was an intense time because in, in real life, there wasn't the money for it. And as I say, I don't want to get involved in too much of what's real and what's not, but there are a lot of similarities. And, and so, yeah, I have a good memory of it. And I was I was a terrible Hebrew student. I've been terrible my whole life at foreign languages, and I just Hebrew was the first, and I, I did terrible at all of them after that. But I you know went to Hebrew school th um, three days a week after school, and by the time I came to Rabbi Mitzvah, I basically knew maybe two words. And and just like Ricky in the book, I had to um, the rabbi we made a record at Woolworths. In those days, there were recording booths at Woolworths, so similar to like photo booths, and so we made a recording of the speech and. So, yeah, I, w I, w I remember it very well. Where did you go to school in the Bronx? I went to a PS86 and then Creston Junior High, and then we moved to New Rochelle. I, pr I probably would end up at DeWitt Clinton. I don't think I was going to get into Bronx science. When was the last time you were back in the old neighborhood? I went back there. It's, a, it's quite a while now, but I, took my, I wanted my children to see it, so we took a, a trip and to show them the old neighborhood and stuff. And that was, uh, it was nice. I mean, it's amazing to me. And, and then a, a few years ago, I, I, I went on Google Maps. And it's just amazing. The, you know, the building looks the same. And it was thrilling. I could focus right in on my apartment. And, and it didn't look like anything had changed much. Do you keep in contact with anyone from the old neighborhood? No. You know, it's funny. I, did, you know, I drifted away when I went to New Rochelle. And, and then years later, I did get in touch with an old friend. And we, we went to a movie together. Um... And that was the end, and I really, I've lost touch with everybody. I'm hoping maybe with this book, you know, I'll find some of the old friends from, from the Bronx. That'd be great. Maybe you'll find uh, Fat I, Bertha. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I don't think she's around anymore. What about your parents? Are they still around? No, they're not. And it, it's interesting, you know, they say, it's taken me 40 years to write this book. And in the end, maybe it's for the best. You know, every, everybody who's sort of involved in it, you know, they're gone. <laughs> And um, so it's just out there now. And, and you know, I, th I think, you know, it's interesting. Some people might say, well, if, if my parents were alive, especially particularly my mother, you know, you know, we're talking about em embezzling money and that sort of stuff and, and things about my father, would they really want their picture on the cover? And I would say yes. Because, again, what they always wanted, my mother particularly, she always wanted fame and they always wanted success and stuff. And so even though there's some negative things maybe being – 
you know, on the picture of this book, I think on the on the whole, they'd be very happy to be on the cover. Her real dream was to be a movie star, right? Exactly, movie star and a singer, and you know, she had a great voice, and and she she wrote songs, and and actually in the book, I you used one of them, and you know, she she had written a song for uh, there was a movie years ago, I'll Cry Tomorrow, and but she was late. They had already bought a song by Johnny Mercer, obviously a great composer. So it was again, it was always like she was always just missing out on making it to to another level. In the book, there's a scene where Ricky's mother is singing in the apartment and the windows are open and the neighbors are hearing her sing and they appreciate the sound because it drowns out the sounds of the Bronx, particularly the sounds of the train. Well, what we had, it wasn't the subway, it was actually the elevator. It was mm-hmm. the Jerome Avenue elevator, which is really pretty much <laughs> right outside our apartment. And it was just, I forget, but it, you know, it seemed like every five or seven minutes a train went by. And, you know, and that was a lot of noise. And then you had the other noise. Of the, and also there was a lot of, besides my parents, there were a lot of other neighbors uh, screaming, fighting, because they, they also were having money problems. And so it was very, and, and there was no air conditioning in those days. At least nobody in the building had air conditioning. The candy store might have had. I think the candy store had. But so windows were open in the summer. And you, you just heard. You heard the lives of people. And it, usually some of it was coarse and some of it was loud. I mean, it was always loud. but And then you had the garbage trucks and stuff. So it, most of the sounds you heard in the Bronx were not necessarily pleasant. And then suddenly you have this woman singing in a very nice voice. And so it, it was a soothing sound. What is your favorite scene in the book? I enjoy that book a lot. So I have a lot of scenes that I like. From a writing point of view, there's a... Uh, a tough scene, you know. There's a scene where I don't want to get into too much detail. I don't like to spoil the reader, but where the father gets suddenly the the Spratz brothers um, ha- basically take the father and son at gunpoint to a location, and that's a pretty rough scene. But I I think it's done well, so I I like it a lot. And then there are a couple of scenes like the one you mentioned before, which I think are just very funny. And, you know, so any of the scenes that are... When I first started writing the book, I really wrote it at first just to be an entertainment because humor was always a big part of my house, even though there was these money problems that... There was just a lot of... My mother always tried to make uh, jokes out of it all. So there's several scenes in the book that I just... I think they're laugh-out-loud funny, and and, and I, I probably in the end like that the best, but there are some pretty tough scenes and some serious stuff. And I say... That particular scene that I, at the, that takes place at the Fulton Fish Market, um, I think from a writing point of view, it's just a well-written scene. I think even I think the first opening scene in, at the tailor shop is also. Um, I'm very happy with the writing on that. Are you hoping to shop this story to Hollywood? A Bronx Tale well, made it it's similar a, it's, story. It's an inter- yeah, it's an interesting thing. I mean, so many readers, even years ago when I was workshopping it and just trying to, people immediately see this as a movie. Now, a lot of writers always see their, they want their books to be movies, so I don't know if I just fall into that category. But I didn't write it as a movie. I wrote it as a novel. But I tend to write in terms of scenes. And so I think a lot of people see it as a movie. And sure, the, you know, the other thing, I, I've always seen it, as I say, I grew up, my mother was a, the secretary to a top theatrical lawyer in New York, so we, even though we didn't have much money, <laughs> we always went to the Broadway shows. We always had really good seats. And so sometimes I see it as a musical also. So, yeah, I'd love it to be either a movie or a musical. It'd be great. And I think it would be good. I think if under the right hands, it could, it could, it could be very good. 
Can you give us a little hint on what you're working on now, what the next book will be about? Yeah, the, well, the name of the book is The Struggle to Be Good. And it's it's a much different book than the first one. It's not as autobiographical. And it takes place, actually, in the, in Massachusetts. And it's a, it's a conspiracy against a basketball coach uh, who coaches um, girls' high school basketball. And but the, only, the only similarity I would say with... Um, the Bookie Sun, is that this also, in my mind, is a comic novel. Though, again, it has serious overtones and some difficult chapters. But So I guess I guess if I'm looking at who I am really am as a writer now, I guess I, I write some version of dark comedy. I don't really think of myself as dark comedy, but it, I think I think some readers would might see that. But, you know, I, as I say, some of, the, some of the reviews that I've gotten on The Bookie Sun... The people that really get into the humor, I don't think they, they necessarily think of it as, as dark because they, they're coming away pretty uh, joyful from the whole experience. I think I saw one review that called it Seinfeld-esque. There, there, there was that, and somebody else compared it to, um, they said it was a cross between Angela's Ashes and David Sedaris. So, you know, being compared to any of those, you know, people is great. You know, I mean, those both in their own field, they're, they're, they're both terrific. So I'm happy with that. Well, Andrew Goldstein, thank you so much. George, it's been great. I really appreciate it a lot. And it's been great. Andrew Goldstein's debut novel is called The Bookie Sun. It's out now from 617 Books. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Julie Clark. Have a great weekend. <laughs>